Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. It is one year since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of its neighbour. How has Ukraine defied expectations that it would be beaten in days? And what military lessons should we take for our own defence? A team of military experts will explain all. We'll also hear from Ukraine's capital on how life has changed but carried on through 12 months of war. It was a shocking day, the February 24th of last year, and extremely hard year. When deaths are counted in thousands, it is probably easy to become numb to the horrors of the war. And amid expectations of fresh offensives from both sides, we assess the battlefield picture at the start of year two. Some of the people I've been speaking to have previously been down in Kherson, and they say the fighting in Bakhmut is of a different level. One person said to me, you know, it makes Kherson look like a, a luxury holiday resort. In the last year, an estimated 250 to 300,000 troops have been killed or wounded in Ukraine. Western figures suggest well over 3 million artillery shells have been fired and more than 12,000 military vehicles are known to have been destroyed. These figures are for both sides in the conflict, but Russia's share is significantly bigger for all of them. This is a conflict that President Putin and many of us thought he would win within days. The bill to reconstruct Ukraine when this does finally end has already topped a third of a trillion dollars. But of course, the greatest cost is human. At least 20,000 Ukrainian civilians killed, more than 8 million who fled as refugees and their country divided by a 900 mile long battlefront. This war has changed Ukraine forever, but has also changed the world. With me this week to explain what's happened, the lessons we should learn and what next, three very experienced military minds. Retired Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell, whose many roles in the RAF included head of theatre airspace capability. Ed Arnold, former British infantry officer, now research fellow at defence think tank RUSI. And Tom Sharp, who commanded four warships during his time in the Royal Navy. Welcome to all of you. Um, Tom Sharp, first of all, 366 days ago, would you have imagined we'd be here now talking about a war on this scale still raging in Europe? I think there were definitely predictions right from the start that this would endure. That there would be no clean solution to this, no clean in and, uh, and no clean out. So the direct answer to your question, once the war started, is yes, I did see that this would endure. I believe the reasons for that, the, the no clean get out for either side, uh, it remains the case. And I think we'll continue to do so for, for, for some time to come. Ed Arnold, in a nutshell, why has it gone on so long? Well, I think the the main point to note is it's actually been going on for nine years, not one. I mean, obviously, combat operations significantly increased in the, in the past 12 months, but this is a war that has very complex origins. And ultimately, I think the, uh, the Russian assumptions of Ukraine's will to fight and also the fact that the political objectives didn't really, were not translatable into military objectives, meant that once the Russian Plan A failed they had no plan b because they hadn't fought that far ahead and sean bell the physical war has remained contained in ukraine but it's also a power war between nato and russia how much has the last year changed what we expect of our armed forces it's changed a huge amount and i think one of the lessons we can draw from 
the invasion is that undoubtedly Putin felt this was a big Soviet army versus a small Soviet army in Ukraine. And therefore, given that they fight a, a very attritional form of warfare, that they would be inevitable, the Russians would win. I think what's happened is it's demonstrated that the West's approach has been around technology. We've moved on from 20th century warfare, highly attritional, to using precision weapons. And that has turned the tide of the war. It's meant that the, the David to Russia's Goliath has not only stopped the Russian invasion, but also pushed back and liberated 50% of the territory that was taken. And I think one of the key messages here, I think, is that both China and Russia and many other countries do military parades each year where they showcase their, their military equipment as, as a sign of power. What this demonstrates clearly is equipment itself does not equal military capability. You've got to also have training and loads of other elements involved. Russia clearly fell short there and they have struggled on the battlefield. Well, before we drill down into those thoughts, let's just take stock of where the war is at. Russia controls just under a fifth of Ukraine's territory in the east and southeast of the country. Since the first weeks, the invaders have overall only lost ground. Right now, the fighting is pretty much static. Daily Telegraph correspondent Colin Freeman has visited Ukraine several times in the last year. He's now in the capital, Kiev, but in touch with people fighting in the current main battle for the city of Bakhmut. Some of the people I've been speaking to have previously been down south in Kherson, which uh, was liberated by, um, from Russian control back in November. And they say the fighting in Bakhmut is of a different level altogether, much more intense. Uh, one person said to me, you know, it makes Kherson look like a, a luxury holiday resort. Their responses are all the same. This is this is very full on combat. And from what we read and see here, there's a sense that the fighting has been ramped down through the winter overall. But what's the reality like for people living in Ukraine? Certainly, I've been here about five days. We've had several air raid sirens here in Kiev, but thus far, I've not been woken up at any point by explosions. That used to be the case quite a lot in the early days when I was I was here in the first month of the invasion. And at that point, the, the routine 5 a.m. wake-up call from a Russian missile was indeed a routine. Now it's fairly rare. Certainly, while the, we do get these occasional sporadic attacks, the Ukrainian air defences are fairly good, are getting better and better at taking out the majority of those drone and missile attacks. Indeed. And, and if it were marked out on a map, where would we see the fighting happening? At the moment, I think it's primarily in and around Bakhmut and that area around the eastern Donbass region. There is not an awful lot going on elsewhere in the country, although I was speaking to some volunteer fighters still in the Kherson region where uh, there is still quite a lot of action going on south of the river Dnipro on the Russian-held side. There's quite a lot of operations being carried out to try and retake various marshy islands that are around that area and which are crucial ultimately for control of that general stretch of the coastline. So some quite fierce fighting there, here and there, but um, overall that is somewhat overshadowed at the moment by what's going on in Bakhmut, what sounds like very, very intense combat. Ukrainian soldiers talking of um, what the so-called zombie waves, where you just get uh, the Russian troops, often they speculate, being conscripts for the Wagner mercenary group, mounting 
pretty much blind charges where the level of recklessness suggests either that they're on drugs or amphetamines or something, um, which is one explanation that's often given, or that they are mindful that if they successfully carry out the storming of a trench or something like that and get a kind of mention in dispatches, it may well assist with them getting a pardon. It sounds absolutely terrifying. Do you get a sense from the Ukrainians of how they're handling that kind of enemy? Um, I, I think they find it quite psychologically unnerving, apparently, when you get these so-called zombie waves of people charging blindly at you, trying to overrun your positions. A lot of the time they're relatively easy to pick off, although not that easy, I don't think. They're not observing normal military tactics of trying to take cover and only advancing when they have covering fire from their own comrades beside them or behind them. And while it does make it relatively easy for the Ukrainians to pick them off, I think they still find it unnerving. And also, because these zombie waves are, are almost non-stop, it means that they're firing their weapons for a long time. There's a risk of the barrel of the weapon if it's something like a machine gun and getting really hot, therefore less easy to use. And that they're scared that if at some point they have to pause to reload, that will be the point at which they may get overwhelmed. And you've spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the last year. Is it then fair to say that the way the war is being fought has changed quite considerably in that time? Um, it seems that the Russians are clearly now only fighting for a very small patch of the, of, of the country. So that's very different to how it was last year when we were expecting the capital to be overwhelmed and, and under siege uh, and several other major cities to also fall at any moment. So it, it, it's now a completely different ball game, to be honest. There is talk of a Russian air campaign ramping up in coming weeks, but... That the reason that's not happened thus far, as we understand it, is because the Ukrainian uh, air defences are pretty good and they're getting better all the time. So it's hard to see, really, what he's going to throw at Ukraine that he's not already thrown already. So what do you think comes next? Is there any possible end in sight? Well, we're not hearing that from Mr Putin's side, certainly, and nobody in Ukraine seems to think that is likely to happen either. As I understand it, the Ukrainians are now recruiting a new uh, seeking fresh volunteers for the fight, which suggests that they are in themselves expecting another long, tough year of fighting, or certainly a, another long, tough spring. Colin Freeman, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Uh, Ed Arnold, when I was chatting to Colin a little later on, he said the soldiers facing those those zombie waves, those zombie attacks, they felt it's almost not a fair fight to use human beings as expendably as ammunition. In your infantry career, did you ever face or hear of another enemy doing that kind of thing? Not really. I mean, in the generation I was, military was all sort of Iraq and Afghanistan, which was very different. But I mean, tactically, the principles remain the same. And I think I agree with Colin's assessment. And we're actually seeing a lot more footage of what's happening around um, Bakhmut at the moment. But what has struck me is, I mean, it's just the basics just do not exist. There's no fire manoeuvre. There's no working in pairs, you know, things like no movement without fire. Um, they're just not even operating either in fire teams or sections, which so just shows the very poor quality 
So Russia, yes, they're able to mobilize and sort of put bodies into the fight, but without training, they don't have any offensive potential. Mm. Sean Bell, Ukraine's air defences, they've clearly prevented this being a lot worse for Ukraine. Are they enough to prevent a possible major Russian air assault or do they need the Western jets President Zelensky is pleading for? The air has been fascinating in as much that um, we really the, the Russian Air Force has almost been conspicuous by its absence. Uh, it's worth pointing out that unlike Western Air Forces, the Russian Air Force is not an independent service. It's still just a sort of air artillery for the land forces. And despite the fact that they've vast assets, about 130 Russian Air Force assets have been lost, about 10%. And they haven't established air supremacy, which they really should have done. But there's no doubt at all that if you put Western air power into Ukraine, the Russians would have no answer to it at all. And the only reason so far that's not happened is that you can't give uh, Ukraine jets and expect them suddenly to be able to convert a military uh, fast jet into a compelling capability. It takes years of training. So committing uh, the West's air power, both the aircraft and the trained pilots, would mean committing combatants to this conflict. But it'll be interesting to see as this war rages on that air power would be a massive decisive enabler for Ukraine. Uh, And Tom Sharp, we we haven't heard much about the naval aspects of this conflict. Ukraine didn't really have a navy left after Crimea was annexed. Just give us a quick overview of how much of a part sea power has played and is playing in this war. As ever, we're there to support the land campaign, and and, um, that's very much happening. I think there are two areas of interest here from a direct maritime perspective. One is the Black Sea, and the other is the the Baltic Sea, and and by extension, the North Atlantic. Again, not often discussed in the current climate of of zombie waves and tanks, and, and rightly so. But they're both strategically very, very important. The Black Sea blockade uh, remains in place, crushing Ukrainian exports creating um, hunger and famine elsewhere in the world. And the, the, the blockade is going to be extended. That's very, very strategically important. And then in the, when you take it up to the Baltic, you start getting into undersea infrastructure. Clearly, the Nord Stream was, a, was an example of this, um, but it's not just oil and gas. Uh, there's the wind infrastructure that the Russians could target. And then critically, strategically, absolutely critically, is the undersea communications infrastructure running between us and America. And, and they've been all over those for decades now. This isn't new. But, but again, it's a, it's a nuclear option without going nuclear were they to start cutting those cables. So there is a maritime component to this. Uh, it's very much in support mm. of the land and air effort, uh, and it'll endure for a while. Well, let's just uh, now talk a little bit about technology up in the air for a moment. Drones in various forms have been key to both sides, haven't they, Sean? Have they come of age in a sustained war for the first time? Well, in, in some respects, yes, in some respects, no. Um, uh, if anybody looks at their history, drones, in effect, have become the sort of eyes and maybe ears over the battlefield. But even into sort of First World War and before, opposing ranks of soldiers would be wanting to see what happened behind the enemy lines and would use balloons. So drones largely still forming the same sort of function. I think one of the things we're seeing, though, is because they are so cheap and so numerous, and we're also seeing them armed as well, maybe not quite as effective as other ways of targeting, but undoubtedly in drones to help the Ukrainians accurately target. Now we've given the Ukrainians guided weapons, if they know where their targets are and can uh, 
um, and geographically pinpoint where those are, they've now got mm. the weapons to accurately target them. And that's what drones provide a critical advantage for Ukraine in this conflict. There's also been a lot of MacGyvering from fitting rocket launchers to speedboats to both sides using specific missiles in a way that wasn't intended. How difficult is that, Tom? It is difficult to defend against, and we've been practising that again for decades uh, with a view to operating in the Gulf, uh, because that is the Iranian orbit. There's huge numbers of, of uncrewed, uh, remotely operated vessels. So very interesting to see it switched around uh, and used on Russian vessels alongside in Sevastopol. The Admiral Makarov was was damaged in that, in that way. Uh, so it is very, very hard to defend against. But we, we mustn't forget that actually uh, the Moskva was a great example of a quite easy threat to defend against that the Russians spectacularly failed. And Ed, how much does all of this mean we, the UK, need to rethink how we might have to fight in future, do you think? It's a bit of a balance to be struck. I mean, I agree with the Sean in, in terms about the use of tech and precision, but I think what Ukraine has shown, you don't want to become a very modernised force for the sake of it. It's all about output and outcome. What Ukraine has been very good at is innovation, which I think we can learn quite a lot of, specifically in the area of information operations. The speed and skill that the Ukrainians are able to use it to achieve their mainly political objectives and keep that continued support not just from Western governments, but also in terms of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing equipment um, from electorates in those countries has been quite remarkable. And then just secondly, not just on the technology. I mean, there's an element where to say that the basics are actually incredibly important. I mean, Ukraine was not an effective fighting force in 2014. It went through a sort of two-year review, which came out with a strategic defence bulletin for Ukraine, and it was sort of an ambitious four-year transformation, but it focused on command and control, planning, operations, medical and logistics, and professionalisation. So it actually... Focusing on those basics, they have managed to do a you know a transformation in a certain amount of time, which is, which has obviously worked. And this is something that we're all always grasping with in the West about military transformation. And I think we can learn a lot from the Ukrainian approach. Gentlemen, stay with us. Well, we've spoken many times on SITREP about the Western supplies of weaponry that have been and will continue to be essential to any success for Ukraine. But the resolve and ability of Ukrainian citizens to fight is also essential. More than 10,000 of them have been trained in the UK to defend their country, with plans for 20,000 more by this time next year. My name is uh, Felix. I am 35 years old. By my civilian life, I am a small business owner. And as the full-scale invasion started, on the next day, me and my also friends, business, small businessmen, uh, we started to operate like a volunteers for the military forces and support whatever we can give for the people on the front line. And right now I am here because it's my step to be in the armed forces to protect Ukraine from, from the invasion. I would like to say my deep gratitude and uh, thank you for the mainly whole the world and especially the United Kingdom and the, who gave us this unique opportunity to be trained. Most of my uh, brothers in arm uh, also don't have uh, any military previous experience, so all the knowledges and training models we go through is very useful for me and my friends here. The course has now been expanded from three 
three weeks to five. While it is a heavily compressed basic training, it appears to be much more than many Russian conscripts are getting. The head of the British Army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, is ultimately in charge of this programme to turn Ukrainian citizens into volunteer soldiers. As you'd expect, they take it incredibly seriously because they know that when they leave us here, they're likely to find themselves going into combat, some of them within a matter of days or at least a matter of weeks. And what's remarkable is we've had as old as a 71-year-old and as young as 18 and 19-year-olds. So this is the whole of the Ukrainian population that's mobilizing. And it basically gets them ready for those first experiences they're going to have in combat on the battlefield. It's about doing what we call battlefield inoculation. So it's exposing them to some of the shock, some of the violence. And these are very, very basic skills, teaching them around infantry tactics, around first aid, and just making sure that they can be an effective soldier as part of a, a platoon or a company when they first go into combat. I mean, do, do you find that it's, it's beneficial to the British Army as well? Yes, it is, because we haven't only got new recruits. We've also got some experienced junior leaders doing further leadership training. And what's vital for us is that we continue to adapt the training to the conditions and the tactics that they're facing on the battlefield. They're going to find themselves either defending pieces of territory, and you do that from trenches, or indeed needing to clear Russians out of the trench systems and the defences that they've prepared. That's a constant in any form of warfare. So we're learning from the Ukrainians almost as much as they're learning from us. General Sir Patrick Sanders there. Well, let's bring back in our panel of former British officers across air, sea and land. Sean Bell, Tom Sharp and Ed Arnold. Ed, uh, before the invasion and when it happened, we went through the numbers on this programme and on paper the Ukrainians were outmanned and outgunned of the order of two to one. So the lesson here looks like it's not what you've got, it's how well you can use it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there is the physical, conceptual and moral component. And I think what has really made the difference is the moral component, which in UK military doctrine is leadership, morale and an ethical foundation. And these are always the more difficult things to get right. But Ukraine has. And actually, one thing that I think is another lesson more for our sort of assessment community and how we look at adversaries in the future, that we probably need better methodologies. What we've tended to do is overestimate capabilities and then potentially the pendulum swings to underestimating capabilities. So an ability to actually assess the morale components accurately um, would do the assessment community the world of good. And Sean, if this is the lesson, isn't that potentially particularly difficult for the voices saying that we must have bigger UK armed forces because of what's happened in Ukraine? Well, without getting dragged into the larger or smaller, I think your point about training is absolutely vital. The British Army has got a global reputation for outstanding training, and I think that's been an invaluable uh, lesson. But it's also, it's not just about the training. It's also we're, we're helping Ukrainians better use the weapons that they've got. The anti-tank weapons, which were provided right at the start of this conflict, the N-laws, were absolutely vital in stopping the Russian attacks. And by all accounts, Russia now has only uh, about a third of the tanks available to it that it had at the start of the war, which is an outstanding uh, a statistic. And what we are seeing, the huge difference here, is the difference between a professional army that follows the law of armed conflict, the Geneva Convention, whereas the Russians have been using mercenaries who are only in mm. themselves. They're not interested in their country. Uh, and they are literally just charging at uh, the Ukraine lines and paying a huge price for that lack of professionalism. And Tom, we've talked many times about the impact of the UK's contribution on its weapons stockpiles. Um, 
What about the demand it's placed on the men and women of all three forces, as well as that training? There have been logistic demands on the Navy and the RAF to get weapons and other supplies to Ukraine. Do you have any sense of whether that can be sustained indefinitely? Yes, I think it can. I, I don't think that uh, is too high a burden or too high a price to pay. I mean, and, and frankly, if we're not going to do that, then then what are we going to do in, in support? So I don't think that's drawing any great kind of lessons for us in terms of sustainability. I would just chip in very quickly flipping across to my current day job about communications lessons and how the importance of that and how the Ukrainians have played that really very, very well, start, starting from the rude dismissal of the uh, of the Russian flagship off Snake Island in the very early days. They've actually played a very savvy communications game. If legitimacy is at the core of all of this, then the Ukrainians have played that really very well. And, and we should learn many, many lessons from that in the UK. Well, we focused, as we do on this programme, on the conduct of the war, the military questions. But of course, the aim of all that military effort on the part of Ukraine and its allies is about people, defending them, their long-term futures and freedom. I've been speaking to Mariana Drach, who's the Ukrainian service director at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, who's currently in Kyiv. Even though we prepared for different scenarios... Uh, it was a shocking day, the February 24th of last year, and extremely hard year. When deaths are counted in thousands and atrocities happen day after day, uh, it is probably easy to become numb to the horrors of the war. Of course, the life has changed dramatically uh, in a year, but today, for instance, uh, the sun is shining, uh, it's frosty weather, uh, and uh, there is a feeling uh, of, there is a very good feeling, I would say, because Ukraine was able to resist the Russian aggression for a very, very long time. Of course, we don't know what to expect tomorrow, and we hear different uh, warnings of Ukrainian officials, what might happen on the 23rd of February, on the 24th of February. Uh, there are expectations that Russia will be attacking uh, the Ukrainian capital again, and this will happen uh, during these two symbolic days. This is something which is in the air. On the one hand, uh, Ukrainians are now much stronger than they were uh, a year ago, uh, but this uh, uncertainty of what to, uh, what to expect ne next is certainly is there as well. And Mariana, in your career, I think it's probably fair to say you probably experienced or had to deal with nothing like this before, both personally and professionally. What keeps you going? Uh, what keeps me going, I think it's the bravery uh, of my colleagues who are working every day to report from front lines, investigate war crimes, and I'm very proud of my colleagues. I personally do not think that, this is some, that the war will be over very soon. Of course, I wish I'm very, very wrong. But I think that we have to be prepared uh, to cover this war for a longer period of time. And I think it is important to uh, have the energy and dedication and determination to do this. 
Well, that's just a small part of Mariana's reflections on the last year and the future of her country. You can hear our whole conversation on an extra edition of the SIPREP podcast, which is online now. Well, let's just get a brief final thought from my guests. It's, it's clear how much is at stake for Ukraine, but how much is at stake for us in this war and how hopeful or not are you about the outcome? Well, I think there's a lot at stake. I mean, the European security order is certainly and probably wider global security and the principle or supporting the principle that international boundaries can't be overrun by with force. I mean, if Putin achieves anything in this war, it demonstrates that aggression in international relations works uh, and that also being a nuclear armed state helps you achieve those objectives. The lessons I, that I take from this, uh, from, from this war is, is that we mustn't chase technology at the expense of, of the basics. There is a there is a tendency to do that uh, for political expediency and to save money. Uh, and this war has shown that really the basics of warfare remain in place and they mustn't be sacrificed at the altar of technology. But really it all comes back to how do we make defence a votable issue in the UK? Because until we do, all the strategizing uh, will forever run up against the Treasury stoppers and we will forever be underfunded in, in UK defence terms. And I'm not sure that this war is necessarily set to change that. And Sean Bell, what about you? How hopeful are you about the outcome and how much do you think is at stake for us in this war? Well, outcome first, uh, it's very difficult to see any side will win as a result of this. There will almost certainly have to be some form of compromise. And then how do you guarantee Ukraine's security with that compromise? The other things that it changes is we've enjoyed the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War and we were involved in wars of choice. We've now got to go back to looking at wars of national survival. This war has was not expected. The rates of usage of weapons are far exceed our planning assumptions. Our war chests aren't deep enough. And even now we're struggling with stockpiles. That will mean a huge additional premium that the nation will have to consider for defence. We are entering a sort of new Cold War era. The tectonic plates of the world are changing. Sean Bell, Ed Arnold, Tom Sharp, thank you so much. And my thanks to all of our guests. That is all for now. We'll be back with another SITREP next Thursday. And if you want to listen online, you can now find us on the Forces News YouTube channel, as well as our home, bfbs.com slash SITREP, or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 